This morning, uh, I'm thankful for your church, thankful for your pastor. Uh, since I was here last in July and spoke from the, this platform, we've had a hurricane. And your church was one of those great churches that stepped in and filled such a need for ministry throughout our area. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being uh, one who serves and who supports and who's a part of Woodland Park Baptist Church. And I thank your pastor. He's such a dear friend and encourager to me and other pastors, and we're thankful for his ministry among us. Today, I want to talk to you about how we respond to different circumstances in our life. I, I am, one of the great burdens I feel is, is in our generation, is that sometimes I just don't think Jesus is as real to us as he ought to be. We understand about going to church, and we understand about reading the scripture and learning the Bible and how we ought to live as Christian people and the things we ought to be concerned about, but, but it's so easy for us sometimes, I think, to get caught up in churchianity and sometimes miss the very heart of the good news, which is that you and I can know Jesus Christ in a personal way. When I came to know the Lord Jesus, I wasn't joining a church. I came to know Jesus. And he was real to me then and now. And, and so that has always been a consistent a note in my heart and ministry is that I want others to know him too. When you and I experience a crisis, perhaps at no other moment in our life, when we are overwhelmed, do we realize the depth or the shallowness of our personal understanding and knowledge of Jesus. Because it's when we're in trouble that we most desperately need him. And we call on him and we want to hear him and we need him to step into our circumstance. And, and so I want to talk with you for this morning for a few moments about the idea of being overwhelmed and what you do when you don't know what to do. And I want to talk to you about it from an incident in the life of Jesus in John chapter 2. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses here in just a moment. In, in my work, I encounter every week, truthfully, every week, a pastor or church leader or a group of church leaders who are being overwhelmed. And often the, the thing that they want to address doesn't necessarily involve Jesus. Because it feels like that we have an organizational problem or it feels like we have a money problem or it feels like we have some other kind of issue in our life. And so an encounter with Jesus is not always the first thing on our mind when we have a crisis. We think of getting relief, of getting a solution, of getting some uh, program or some answer to our problem. And yet the testimony of Scripture is that often God allows these things to come into our life so that we'll cry out to him so that we'll turn to him. And so one of these moments in John chapter 2 was when they ran out of wine at the wedding feast at Cana. Now that wouldn't have happened at a Baptist wedding. <laughs> we wouldn't have had people feeling like they were in a bind. But let's just say maybe it was a Presbyterian wedding or something. But in John chapter 2, there was a crisis. It was a very real one. And I want us to see that this morning. So in John chapter 2, I'm beginning to read in verse 1. 
The Bible says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made from wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. We do welcome you here, and we ask that you would speak through your scriptures and speak through my heart to every heart gathered here. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. I'm watching what's happening here in the story, and it's, it's, it's remarkable because here's a crisis that's unfolding as you're reading. And if you weren't familiar with the story and you were thoroughly Jewish, you would understand the nature of this crisis. Because a wedding in that day and time was not something that was completed in 15-minute ceremonies. It was something that lasted over several days. And the wine was provided by the, the, the families, and it was a honor or a shame in terms of running out of the things necessary for hospitality. And so if you were to run out of wine, it was a shame. Now, you and I in the U.S., we don't live in an honor-shame culture. But in so much of the world, particularly in the Middle East, they feel shame and honor intensely. And I, I've shared stories about this before in, in, in other places and times where we've befriended Palestinian friends before and, and how we invited them over to our house on one occasion and I cooked burgers for them. And, and when I got through, I, I'd asked him, his name was Muhammad, I said, Muhammad, um, I said, do you mind if we pray before we eat? And I said, he said, sure. And so I prayed and I, I thank God for Muhammad and his family. I thank God for... Um, you know, the opportunity to be friends with him and ask God to bless our time together and said, amen. And when I looked up and I, I looked at Muhammad, his eyes were intense. They were almost fierce, and he was looking at me intensely. And I thought maybe I had offended him. And so I said, Muhammad, what's wrong? He said, we are eating together. In my country, that means we are very, very close. And without thinking about it, he said, I would do anything for you. I would die for you. I said, Muhammad is just a burger, buddy. You know, 
We, we don't have that sense of honor and shame and what the significance is of showing hospitality. And in Jesus' day, when he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, he was receiving them and, and welcoming them and into his circle of friendship. And so on this occasion where there's this wedding taking place, they, they run out of wine, and, and Mary enlists her son to perform this miracle. She didn't know how he was going to do it, but she knew if anybody could handle it, he could. And, and this miracle takes place, and the need is taken care of. And there is a real example here of what it looks like when you and I are overwhelmed and we're in a crisis and how should we respond in that circumstance. Now I'm not going to ask anyone for a show of hands, but you're either in a crisis right now, coming out of one or going into one. It's the nature of the human condition. So it's not whether or not you're, you have a problem, it's, it's you're going to have a problem. How do you respond to that? And I just want, as your brother in Christ, to say to you, Jesus lives he is alive. Amen. And when you read the Gospels, if you were to follow him around on any given day, he always seems to be on an intercept course with people in crisis. People who needed direction to God and they needed answers about God and, and people who were hurting or needed relief from God, but he was always encountering these people. If that's the way he walked the earth in, in his physical body, don't you think that's how he walks the earth today? And so you never have a greater opportunity to experience the love and the presence of Jesus than when you're in trouble. And so I offer that to you as, as encouragement. Jesus is very close at this moment. And so what do you do when you don't know what to do? I, I, I'm just going to share three simple things. The first thing is this. Let him in. Invite him in. When you're in a crisis, at some point, hit pause and invite Jesus into your crisis. When we're anxious and afraid, we tend to close everyone out. Shut God out, shut people out. I tend to do that. And so we need to invite him in. The very reason that there was a crisis at this wedding and that need was met is because someone had invited Jesus to the wedding. Now, shouldn't Jesus be invited to weddings? Should he be invited into a worship service? Often when I, I pray with pastors before we're going to eat a meal or, or share a cup of coffee or something like that, I, I, I ask the Lord, would you come into our conversation? Would you direct this conversation, Lord? Bring to our mind those things that we need to talk about, that we need to discuss. We welcome you here, Lord. And there's just such a sense of his presence when we invite him in. And so there's just such an irony. Sometimes we, we, um, we say we want Jesus to come into our lives and to address our, our needs and our problems. But sometimes we're not willing to let him in. I, I always think of the analogy of it's supposed to get really hot this summer. I don't know if you've noticed today. It's supposed to be one of the hotter days we've had in southeast Louisiana. And, and let's say today you decide, well, today I'm going to turn on my air conditioner. And it doesn't work. And you notice that just before church. So you call up your handy-dandy repair person to come and fix your air conditioner, and they're going to meet you after church. 
So you get home, they're not there yet, so you go in, close your door, you sit down, you're waiting. Mopping your head, you know, with your handkerchief or whatever, it's hot, you're, you're sweating, you're, you're, you're wanting this repairman to fix the air conditioner, and all of a sudden you hear a knock at the door. So-and-so, ABC, air conditioner repair, HVAC certified, whatever, I'm here to fix your air conditioner. He said, you're going to have to open the door, though, to let me in so I can fix it. And you say, well, I don't want to get off the couch. And you don't let him in. And there would be an irony to that, wouldn't it? It would just be kind of silly to us. We, we say we want Jesus to come into our problems and to deal and address with our needs, but we've got to be intentional, I believe, about letting him in. We understand in Scripture that we're supposed to surrender to Jesus as the Lord of our lives and to surrender everything to him. But I also find that in the way that plays out day by day by day by day that I need to surrender conversations to him and plans to him and, and decisions to him and, and encounters with him and problems to him. I need to surrender all that to him and I need to do it on a regular basis and, and with gusto, <laughs> depending on how many problems you have. So the first thing we have to do is invite him in. Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you, would you step into this? Now, now, now listen to me. He is sovereign. He is on his throne. But what you're inviting him to do is come in and rule in your circumstance. You say, is that scriptural? Is that, is that bi biblical to invite Jesus to come in and rule over your circumstances? Absolutely. Have you ever heard of the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come! Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are petitions. Those are things we're asking God to do. And if I was to translate it in its purest form, it would be, your kingdom, let it come. Your will, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what are you praying at that moment? You're saying, God, the way that you rule in heaven, where there is no sin, no sickness, no Satan, nothing going on, that's out of your control. We're asking you the way that you rule in heaven, that you would rule on earth in my circumstances in this very moment. Would you enter into my circumstances and would you rule? Jesus taught us to pray that way. And the implication is, is if I don't ask, I can't expect that he's going to enter into my circumstances. Now God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. There's no place in the universe where God is not. That is absolutely true. But there's a difference between knowing that God is here with my heart and in my experience and knowing that he's here with my head. And he wants you to know him in your experience. And so these problems that come, these crises that come, what an opportunity you and I have to say, oh God, would you come and enter into this problem? I surrender it to you. Second thing we need to do is to tell him what's wrong. When I look at this passage of Scripture, it says in verse 3, now verse 2 it says, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Okay, so there it is. They were invited in. They were invited to the wedding. Verse 3, and when they had run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So what did she just do? She told Jesus what the problem was. Tell him what's wrong. Tell him what hurts. Tell him what's disturbing you.
I think of the Psalms, all throughout the Psalms in the Old Testament, how many times we read descriptions, the psalmist pouring out their heart before the Lord. And there's, there's some the things that need to happen as you and I do that. Because what you're doing is you're, you're transferring ownership of the problem to him when you tell him what's wrong. They have no wine, Mary says. I'm not owning this problem anymore. I'm telling you, Jesus, they have no wine. She just disowned the problem. You say, is that, is that being a responsible person? No. We're going to see that in a moment because there's things that come after that. But, but Jesus really wants you to give him your problems. That is a very real heart-level transaction when I turn over the administration of my problem to Jesus. It's real. You say, well, is that, is that also in the Bible? Well, yeah, it is. The only other place I want to call attention to in Scripture right now is in Peter 5. First Peter 5. Precious passage of Scripture. You can just jot it down if you're taking notes. First Peter 5, and in the latter part of verse 5, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, because that's the way God operates. He gives, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, now listen to that again. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Jesus they have no wine. Did she humble herself under the mighty hand of God? When she came and told him the problem, is that not humbling to come to him with the problem and say, I can't handle this, I can't fix this, I don't have the resources to address this, but I'm coming to you and I'm handing it over to you, humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. And in context, Peter then turns around and says that he may exalt you in due time so that he can take care of it, casting, here it is, casting all your care on him because he cares for you. Now, how much of your care, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you, how much of your care are you to cast on him? All. All is a great Bible study in the scripture, by the way. Just the word all. It's really neat. That's, that's a different topic. He says, cast all your care on him. That's the disowning of the problem. One is you humble yourself in the mighty hand of God when you come to him with your problems because you're saying, I can't do it, but I believe that you can. But then you disown your problem when you cast all your care on him. God, this is out of my control. I can't fix her. I can't fix him. Can't fix my kids. Can't fix my marriage. Can't fix my job. Can't fix my finances. Can't fix my health. I can't fix these things. So I'm casting all my care on you. Now, what's really interesting is that when people have that level of crisis going on in their heart, historically, through the ages, it has posed, posed one of the great theological problems for every man and every woman. If God is all-powerful and God is in control and God is good, why doesn't he make bad things go away and bad things stop? 
And the enemy creeps in at that moment. When we start asking those questions, the enemy creeps in and says, because he doesn't care for you. The reason you have all these problems, and it's all out of your control, is because God doesn't love you and God doesn't care for you. Now Peter just said the exact opposite of that. Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. And right after that he says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What does that tell you about your trouble? You better handle it well or you're going to become roadkill for the devil emotionally, spiritually. So, so this is very important that I learned to do what Mary did. So simple in the text, so clear. Jesus, they have no wine. She took it to the person who could do something about it. She no longer bore responsibility for it. She unloaded it and left it with Jesus. And dear, when, when you're in trouble and when you're struggling, you may have to do that 10 times in a day. But that's what you've got to do. That's your, that's your pathway to relief. And that keeps you from being manipulated by the enemy who wants you to believe that God doesn't love you. That's just not true. So as we deal with what to do when we don't know what to do, I need to invite him in. I need to tell him what's wrong. And that act of telling him what's wrong is a demonstration of faith that he can handle the things that I can't, that he is greater, and that he wants me to pray in this way, and that I'm giving it to him. But the third and the final thing I want you to see is this. Do what he says. Do what he says next. So you're saying, is it irresponsible to cast all my cares on him? No, not if you're willing to do what he says next. Because he's going to give you direction. He's going to give you a guidance. He's got a way for you through this. He does. And so do what he says. So what happens next? Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. I love this. This is a great Mother's Day verse. Woman, I scholars have wrestled with that expression. They really have. If you read 10 commentaries, Tim, they're going to be divided. Was he being disrespectful to Mary, you know, by calling her woman? Or was it a term of endearment? I don't know. I don't know. I do know this. I do know that Mary gave the problem to Jesus. She approached him as a mother would. Jesus, I have no wine. But she left as a believer. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. By the way, if there are any young people left in here, if your room's a wreck and your mother comes in for the 10th time and tells you it's time to pick it up, I dare you to look at her and say, woman, my time has not yet come. <laughs> Because I don't think it's going to end well. <laughs> but it had deep theological significance when Jesus said it. 
And the rest of the story as it unfolds, it's this remarkable story. These six water pots, they hold 20 to 30 gallons. Those of you who've handled water, you know a gallon of water weighs like nine pounds. Those are heavy dudes, and they, they're supposed to fill those pots to the brim. So Jesus comes to the, the, these servants and says to them, fill these water pots with water. And I'm one of those servants that would have raised my head and, and said, Jesus, now wait a minute, let me be sure I understand this. Because as best I can tell, we don't have a water problem. We have a wine problem. And you're telling us to fill these pots up with water. But they did it. And then he said to ladle out some of that and carry it to the, the master of the feast and let him taste it. Now some scholars, again, are divided. We don't know. It's speculation. Did it change as soon as they filled the pots, or did it change when that ladle was en route to the master of the ceremonies? I don't know. It's pretty cool. Whatever happened, he did it. But here's what I want you to see about how Jesus gives direction. When, when, when God leads you and me, he knows the entire plan that he has for your life. And you say, is there really such a plan? There really is. Ephesians 2.10 for by grace, well, that's 2.8, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. There's the plan. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. And so there is a plan, and God has the plan. But he doesn't give us the whole plan. Does he? He gives us the plan in steps. Step one, step two, step three. Does that show up in this story? It sure does. Step one, fill the pot. Step two, ladle some out and take it to the master of the feast. He didn't tell them all at once what to do. And I wouldn't expect that he would tell you all at once what to do. When I moved down here three and a half years ago, we were loading up a U-Haul truck with my, my library, my, my books, 4,000, 5,000 books. And I fell off the back of the truck, broke my wrist in three places. Now, if I'd known that was one of the steps in advance, I think I would have said, Lord, I don't like that step. Let's leave that one out. See, he doesn't give us all the steps, and I'm thankful for that. So in his wisdom, he holds the map, he has the plan, but we walk it out, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. It's a walk. We walk it out step by step by step. So you don't need to know the whole plan. You just go to the Lord and say, now, Lord, what do you want me to do next? What's the next step? That's all you need is the next step. And the second thing that I would point out here is that that step may not immediately make sense. In our Western mindset, where we have to have all the explanations up front before we act, we're going to discover that in interacting with God, he doesn't work that way. That there are things that he will direct you to do that don't always make sense. It did not make sense to fill up six water pots with water. It did not make sense that once they were filled with water to ladle it out and carry it to the master of the ceremonies. But dear one, if you're waiting for everything God directs you to do to make sense you may miss some things that God wants to do to deliver you from your crisis. And so we have to learn to trust God. We need to learn 
to trust his word, to trust the things he's leading us to do. And you say, well, I don't know that I hear God like that. We grow in that. No one goes out never having run a race before and runs a four-minute mile. It just doesn't happen. We, we cultivate a relationship with, a, with God where we learn to recognize his voice, but you will recognize his voice as you spend time alone with him in his word and you just sit with him and you love him and you gaze on him and you discover his beauty the way David did when he says, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may gaze on the, the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life and to inquire in his temple, Psalm 27. And as you do that, you'll discover that what Jesus said in John 10 is true. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And God speaks in so many different ways. But he speaks. He intends to go before you every day into your world. And he calls you to follow him. He doesn't say, now go out there and do your best. He is our king. He is our Lord. And he has a way for you through your present and your future crises. Praise the Lord. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know my Jesus? Some of you have known him a long time. And others, maybe you're here and for the first time you're beginning to think about this. Do I know him? We talk about getting saved in Baptist churches. What we mean by that is that there's a time in which we're not saved and we need to be saved. That when a person is not saved spiritually, they're disconnected from God. They're separated from God. And it's because of their own sin. And we believe that all of us are sinners. That all of us have within ourselves a spirit of rebellion. We don't want any God telling us what to do. And so we learn that, that there's this sin inside of us that wants to do what we want, the way we want, how we want. And how, how's that working for you? And there's a point at which you come to the end of yourself and you realize, I need God. And what we discover is that he has sent his son into this world on a rescue mission for your soul. That when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying for your sins. That he put on himself and God punished him for the things that you and I had done. And to prove those sins were forgiven, he was raised from the dead. Death was defeated. The wages of sin were paid and put away. And what he calls you and I to is to a life of abundance. I am come that they might have life, he says in John 10, and have it more abundantly. A different kind of life, a new way to live where it's not all on you, but it's on him. And so he invites you to take his yoke upon you, to learn from him invites you to enter into a relationship with him where he is Lord. You're the disciple. He's the master. You're the servant. And you don't have to carry the weight of your life anymore. And all that he asks of you and me is to come and to trust him. Put our faith in him. Trust him. To trust him 
to carry our sins away, to trust Him to come inside me and to change me by His Spirit from the inside out. That's what Jesus was about. That's what this church is about. That's what the churches of the North Shore are about. Today we invite you, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to come. Put your trust in Christ. There'll be a couple of men here. I'll be here. We'll be happy to answer your questions, share scripture with you about how a person becomes a Christian. The promise of God's word is that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you're ready to do that today, we invite you to come. If you just need someone to pray with you, you're in the midst of a crisis. What I was talking about was not hypothetical for you. It's a real deal. And you need someone to pray with you. Come, take one of these men by the hand and say, would you just pray for me? Heaven forbid you should come needing someone to pray for you and leave today with no one praying for you. So we invite you to come. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes?